Welcome to Historical AF. I'm Kina. Sure. I'm Marison Kopanzer. And I'm Nachliel Selavan. You can call me NJ if it's easier to pronounce. <laughs> yeah, well, my middle name is Joseph. So. Oh, okay, <laughs> yes. The yeah. hillbilly makes pronunciation difficult sometimes for me. <laughs> Well, is just a little, it rolls off the tongue. Like, you know. Yeah. We are a historian and some special guests delivering you the random and historical religious nugs you never knew you needed in your ear holes. I'm so excited you guys are here. You guys are joining me from Jerusalem with the time difference and then the Texas apocalypse. This has been pushed back a lot, but it's finally here. Well, you know, Jerusalem and Apocalypse is like, okay, which one is it this time? You know, it's like, we, we, we you know, yeah. we've heard that before. Apocalypse is our jam. Is there like a Facebook, I, I'm okay in the Texas freezing? Of, they used to have those things when there was an event, a catastrophe, you know, God forbid, people would say like, I'm okay in the whatever on Facebook. That didn't pop up, but we did get a thing that popped up that said, if you need food and water, click here. And then if you could give food and water, click here. So it created oh, wow. that. I saw that. Yeah. I saw that around. Yeah. So I that saw was that. really cool. My city luckily has a Coliseum type thing and they were giving away five gallons of water to everybody. So that was oh, that's really, great. I'm South Central Texas and I'm smack in between San Antonio and Austin. So there's a lot of resources where we are. So mm, kinda wow. that's great. That's out, but uh, we made I'm it. Not- it's almost 70. It was 66 before we started recording. So I'm in shorts again. I'm like, finally, <laughs> back yeah. to normal. <laughs> so tell yeah. everybody about you guys. So I grew up in the old city of Jerusalem and a great part of my childhood, like many people who grew up in the old city after 1967, is we climb on rooftops. And I think the best metaphor for that is Aladdin. You know, one step ahead of the then. It's like hopping. All the rooftops are connected. It's not like you're jumping like Spider-Man, right? So I, as a kid, I'm talking like seven, eight years old. I'm like, hmm, I wonder what happens if I climb up here. Like, where will I land up? And you're halfway across the little neighborhood. So I loved climbing up the seal, the roofs. That's how I got away from going to school sometimes. I just hide on a roof of some building. You also climbed the walls in school. Yes. (laughs) Or I made the teachers climb up the walls. And my parents thought I was suicidal. I just thought I was Spider-Man, little... (laughs) difference of opinion. Um, But I really, I just, I loved climbing up rooftops and, you know, so that was a great part of the childhood. We always, everyone did that. Everyone did that in the old city. So until today, you know, uh, I'm always the one who will go off the beaten path, you know, like here's the road. And I'm like, you know what? No, I'm just going to go around and jump up and down and whatever. It's like, cause yeah, cause rules are meant to be broken. Which is why he needs a partner for our podcast. (laughs) (laughs) On track and channel him. I see what you, I see what you did there. I see what you did there. (laughs) I think a great, a great hook for, uh, you know, a podcast about Jerusalem and religion is there's this thing, there's this phenomenon in Jerusalem called Jerusalem syndrome. There was actually an episode in The Simpsons which shows this. It's people who come to Israel regardless. They're usually religious, but they can be Jewish, Christian, Muslim. And when they land in Jerusalem, they sort of think that they assume the role of a biblical religious figure. And they dress the part looking like, you know, uh, Ceci B. DeMille, like vestiges, vestments, was there? They dress up like they wear the robe and they hold a stick. Yeah. There was this, this man in the middle of town shouting Isaiah chapter and verse in English in the center of town. It's just like, it's like New York. Uh, one time I was, uh, I used to live in the center of town and I was walking out of my apartment and I was like, this is, 
you know, there, there are bars and whatnot. I walk out and there's this guy just schlepping this enormous wooden cross down the main thoroughfare of Jerusalem, just bearing oh, wow. his cross, going along. And that's, you know, we get that here. You know, if, if, if the person who, who gets seduced into Jerusalem syndrome is Jewish, they'll be King David or King Solomon. We, we had, we had two, Jesus we had, Baptist, you know. there was once by the Western Wall, two King Davids beating each other up. Yeah. It's oh my crazy. God. <laughs> King David, please stand up. Right. And you had this one guy who was like, um, he was playing a harp and selling his CDs. <laughs> standing there now apparently uh, i don't know what the story was he was like a jewish jews for jesus like a half like i don't know he was pushing certain kinds of missionary messages and then these other guys like they didn't like that so they just started beating him it was just like crazy crazy stories wow. there was yeah there was one african-american woman who was convinced she was king david and she wore a golden harp on her head I remember getting, in, I was in eighth grade, is in the center of town, and she was getting photographed and interviewed for a National Geographic episode. And I just asked, can I and my friend, can my friend and I be in the background? So I remember that story. So yeah, that's just like, that's our neighborhood. And you have people who think they're John the Baptist or something else. Like they just, and in the Simpsons episode, Homer becomes the Messiah of falafel and peace or something like that. That's what was happening there. That's Jerusalem. That's on brand. That's so interesting. But yeah, it's so symbolic to so many different religions. I can imagine it's just when people get there, they kind of get really overwhelmed with it and feel like they really need to go full on. (laughs) Yeah. And work really crazy enough without the extra crazy. So So I'm so interested for you guys to talk about this because there's really the perspective of living there and that being your normal is just so fascinating. Yeah, there's a lot of... I mean, just the news gives you such a tiny mm-hmm. slice of what's going on here. And there's this kind of obsessive focus with that one tiny slice. And you don't get a sense for the overall picture. So right now we're sitting in my home and we live on the Jerusalem old train bike path. And if I go out onto the bike path right now, you know, I'll hear people speaking Hebrew, English, French, Russian, uh, it'll be mostly mostly Arabic. It, well, yeah, it'll be about half and half Hebrew Arabic, and then a smattering of other things because this is an area where we have a lot of mixing. But you don't actually hear about that very much. Before I moved here, I lived in another area where there was, you know, there's a significant Jewish population, significant Arab population, but there was much less mixing because the public areas were were just less shared than they are here. This is a you know pretty refreshingly you know, just mixed environment. And there's there's a good amount of interaction. So, you know, I've been working out in a, a local park and I can count on a good number of the people I meet in the park being, you know, being from different backgrounds, mostly Muslims. I just ran into, did I tell you this? I ran into a guy in the park who's a Mennonite and his oh. wife is Amish. And they're here with like, they're here on a particular mission. They have a particular <laughs> kind of charity thing. So we're hoping to have them over for Shabbos sometime. That is but, yeah. cool. Yeah, yeah, really. What, really is a Men- what is a Mennonite? It's like a liberal Amish. Yeah, very a similar to Amish. Amish. Yeah, I okay. think they can have some like technology. He listens to podcasts. Oh, that's that's advanced. Yeah. <laughs> I love the idea of all the different cultures mixing and just being able to see so many different kinds of people. Amazing. I mean, there's this one guy, I might mention him later, uh, a, f- a friend of mine who's a friar. He is an, uh, an Armenian 
Arab Christian <laughs> from Syria, born in Jordan. Wow. A little bit tongue twisted yet. And he lived in the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, now he lives in, in, in the north, but we met on Instagram back in the day when Instagram had natural reach. So we just met on Instagram and like, I live in the old city. You live in the old city. We both like museums. We just caught up. We just started talking and then we met. So he brought me into the Holy Sepulchre last January, gave me a private tour. I have the Holy Sepulchre's Wi-Fi password. <laughs> what? <laughs> like, it's crazy. You know, he took me all the backwards. Like, so I'm sitting there and I'm walking around and I have my little beanie here. And he took me around the neighborhood. So we walked into some um, Arab hospital and I'm walking around and, you know, like I can pull off sounding Arabic, but my Arabic isn't great. So I'm just walking around with him and then people see me and they go like, hello, father. Hello, father. <laughs> <laughs> what an experience. Who can say that? That's amazing. And have yeah. you lived there your whole life or have you? Born and bred. That's amazing. Yeah, not a lot of people can say that. We're a rare breed. <laughs> he had a sojourn in New York. Uh, I grew up in Northern Virginia and then went to school in the Boston area and then went on a long hike on the Appalachian Trail. And then basically about a year after graduating college, I, I moved here with the idea that, you know, I'd study and my big idea was, okay, I want to see how people live Torah because I'd studied philosophy and there were all these high ideas swimming around in my head, but I had no idea how to really implement it in daily life. And without really knowing anything about Jewish law, I had this idea that Jewish law would somehow connect those high ideas to like how I eat, how I sleep, how, you know, you relate to other people, those kinds of things. So I thought, okay, I want to go see how people live that. And so I moved here and when my feet hit the ground, it was like, oh yeah, that's right. This is home. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And how'd you guys meet? How did we meet? Uh, <laughs> we met over drinks. Well, <laughs> that's a deceptive way of saying yes. <laughs> Well, kiddish. I mean, like after Saturday services, usually after services, people sort of sit down and have some drinks and nosh and they talk and whatever before they go home to their families. So that's how we met. One of the, it's, it's called a kiddish. Think of like in, in Harry Potter, the kiddish cup, we call it. Kiddish. Yeah. Well, there's a conspiracy theory behind that too. Never thought about that. <laughs> that's most important. So we met, we met over kiddish, which is, it's usually like, you know, booze and guys and whatever. Like that's more what or less what it is. Last presentation of kiddish. I mean, like maybe that's how it is in New York with those ridiculous synagogues. You, you, have, you have a point. In New York, they, they, like here in Israel, I remember this that was like there's very little drinking here. There's first of all, sitting down to that's because to, because of the whiskey tax. Lecture so, of like an hour and a half, two hours. We're saying in general, whiskey is so expensive. Well, it used to be so much more expensive in Israel that they'd bring out like a twelve year shivis, and I would feel embarrassed asking for a refill. And then I moved to New York in 2013, and people are like pouring eighteen whatever down, like fill it up here, take one. Like it completely threw me off. It took me a while to realize, okay, you can just drink. And then I come back to Israel and I'm like, what? Is, what <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's New, New York Kiddish is very different than Israeli Kiddish. Oh, that's really cool. And how did you guys decide you wanted to have a podcast? Well, we used to just have these interesting conversations and I think you had the idea of making it a podcast because you have the previous podcast. That's right. Yeah, I had a podcast uh, called Holy Madness, which I'm about to make available again online. You could think of it kind of as cultural criticism from the perspective of Torah, but with a lot of jokes. <laughs> like, I mean, 
I don't know how to say it. I mean, I think of like a philosophy podcast, but instead of the points of reference being like Plato and Descartes and Nietzsche, it would be Genesis and the Talmud and the Zohar and things like that. So I was doing that and uh, that podcast kind of pittered out and I was looking at starting some new projects and now I have two podcasts. So this one, the Artifact podcast, and I have another podcast with uh, two Christian co-hosts and it's called Two Christians and a Jew. And the idea... (laughs) Very descriptive. (laughs) Very descriptive. I love it. (laughs) The idea was, I kept getting these questions from Christians like, there's this thing in the Hebrew Bible that I don't understand. What does this mean to you? Or I read it this way, but it's about Jesus. And obviously it couldn't be that for you. So what's this mean to you? So that podcast started for that. And Nachliel was, oh, you you were here over here for uh, Shabbat. And we were throwing around some ideas and I was like, oh, we should do that as a podcast. There you go. And uh, <laughs> Nachliel has some uh, expertise, not only in history, but also archaeology. And so I, I gave over this concept. So like, here's what you do. You're going to start with an artifact, like a thing, and then you'll get into the history behind it. And then you'll get into the philosophy behind it. And then you'll get into like the existential issues behind that. In other words, and, I get to geek out and we monetize our conversations. Right. <laughs> so then, so then I, I pitched him this idea and he picks up uh, the wine bottle, which I have moved off the table. And, find it. and he pops out the cork. <laughs> he pops out the cork from the wine bottle and he's like, this is the first artifact. And that was just to give you some background that our, that cork was from a winery established in the, the details don't matter, but it was established in 1882 by a particular movement in Jewish history, la, 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 la. And it I was said, the first episode of our podcast where right. everybody can go and yes. subscribe. And beyond the cork, beyond the cork, right? Below the cork, beneath the cork. Beneath the cork? Beneath the, yeah, cork. beneath the cork. So we just like all this history, because this is actually a class that I gave to my 10th graders learning about Jewish history and modern Zionism. And I spoke about this winery in Israel founded by the Rothschilds and all that stuff. The Rothschilds. Yes. Well, it's just like, there's an example. Like, I can do this for so many different things. Let's Artifact Podcast. That's where the name came from. I bet my listeners are quaking because this is exactly the kind of history we geek out about. (laughs) So good. So interesting, especially with this theme. We just kind of keep talking about religion, about how fascinating it is and how, like, the history behind everything. And all the links will be in the show notes. Yes, definitely go check them out. So if I can jump in here, I want to walk back a little bit before the before people started running over us for religious purposes and like give a, a little bit of background before that. Is that cool? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Some coordinates, you know. I yeah. Guess. Coordinates prehistory. Prehistory. So, yeah. I am ready. <laughs> when we think about Israel getting run over by empires, we can go all the way back to Abraham, Abraham. And we have in the Torah, in Genesis, a record of this like proto world war between two different alliances of kings. And so already there, you see there's this kind of empire conflict happening here. And then we have this weird episode with, again, with Abraham, where he goes and he buys land from a group of Hittites living in Hebron. What on earth are the Hittites doing in Hebron? Because the the, the Hittites are an Indo-European people. They're, they're and, all the way up in Turkey in central Anatolia. Yeah, yeah they're what, are they doing? Yeah, what are they yeah. doing here? So, well, okay, hold on to that thought because... 
if we go later into the, the book of Joshua, we've got Joshua vanquishing 31 kings. That's an awful lot of kings to cram into this little land over here. So like what what's going on with 31 of them? So you, it it's might be, be the king. Yeah, it's going to be the king. We <laughs> might have like a lot of small time homegrown locally sourced kings, or maybe there were like greater empires that were setting up colonies here. So it could be that the Hittite group in Hebron, that they were also a colony, just speculation. I mean, but you yeah, just yeah. jump in yeah, onto yeah. that. So like my father was a tour guide once said this as follows. If you would look at the old city, and put a flag for each country that has a building, a piece of land in Jerusalem, you'd have about 200 flags, True. right? It's like everyone wants a piece of the action here, even if it's just an embassy, a building or something, right? There's something about this place that's drawing people. Who puts an embassy in Jerusalem? Good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> it is our capital. <laughs> anyway. So then we can talk about like the Philistines who probably weren't just one group of people. Uh, we hear about kind of different layers. We don't need to go into the details, but actually we did an episode on that. Yeah, we so, did. Yeah, we did. Yeah, the so Philistines, right. the Artifact Podcast with Nathaniel Sullivan. Check out the episode about the box and you'll get us. Right. Out of the box. Out of the box. That's yep. it. Right. Anyway. Um, so we've yeah, got good material, good plugs here. Yeah, we are all about the shameless plug on this podcast. Yeah. So, Do it as um, much as you want. <laughs> okay, cool. So the at least the later layers of Philistines, they look like they were maybe from the Aegean Sea and they were approaching uh, on the sea. But you have this, again, this other civilization kind of moving in. And so they're on the coast, kind of the southern coast of, of Israel. And around that same time, you've got also other empire civilizations kind of pressuring us from the east on the other side of the Jordan. Assyria, and, Babylon, then Persia, you know. Yeah, so there's all sorts of stuff going on there. Now, okay, so before we get to like Assyria and ba uh, Babylon and all those places, like, like we're about to get there. So the, like the Philistines are terrifying, right? But they're really small potatoes compared to what was coming, right? So then... This land, you have to understand, there's this beautiful map that sometimes you see. It's like three leaves coming out of it, Israel. It's kind of like a, like a propeller. It, look, it, exactly. different, it looks like different, a propeller. And it has okay. Jerusalem in the center as a circle, and then Europe, Asia, and Africa, basically. Oh, okay. Right. So Europe, oh. Asia, and Africa are the three wings of the propeller. Three, what are they, propels? What are they called? Propylaeus. Props. The three Prop. props of the propeller. Yeah. yeah. Three, three <laughs> propeller pops. So we're this junction between these different continents here. And so if right. you're... The bridge, right. Right. So if you're Babylon and you want to go conquer Egypt. Egypt, or at least secure your outermost border with them, then you want to come through here. And if you're Egypt and you want to go get Babylon, you're coming through here. And if you're the Neo-Assyrians and you're expanding and you're thinking about Egypt again, because everybody thinks about Egypt, then you're coming through here. I'll just say that the Jews chose a very poor place to establish a religion. We're constantly caught between big fish eating even smaller. Like we're constantly in the crossfires. <laughs> yeah. I thought that was part of the divine plan. We had to be caught in that crossfire so you can absorb all the crazy stuff that's coming at you. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm starting. I, I feel the love. You feel the love. <laughs> you feel the love. Anyway, so, so then, like you, you, then you have the Greeks come along. So Alexander conquers us on his way to, to visit the Sphinx, basically, right? So he's, yeah. he's on his way to Egypt. 
I mean, there's a big relationship between Greece and Egypt, but that's totally not our topic right now. Um, <laughs> and so all these empires come through here and basically we say welcome or you're not so welcome, but please get in line of passport control and, you know, so on and so forth. You want to go to Pompeii? Well, no, not the city of Pompeii, General Pompeii, who was in the, the famous triumvirate with Julius Caesar. Right? Oh, we know how well triumvirates work out. People divide power. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, Pompeii ended up uh, con- coming and conquering the land of Israel. That's when we're talking about like 2080 years ago. Uh, he comes into Israel and he basically takes advantage of you know, two brothers of the Hasmonean, you know, like the Maccabees descendants, fighting between them. He's like, this sounds right for the picking. And he takes control. And since then, we have the 10th Legion in Jerusalem pretty much all the way until the Byzantine period. The Romans are here. Right. So what we skipped over here yes. is that- A few important are, things. Yeah, a few important things. So <laughs> here in Jerusalem, we had this temple. Yes, the center and, of religion. Right. So that's the temple that was kind of started by David and then built by Solomon. And then it was destroyed by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah. We were exiled. And then we came back kind of post-Esther. Cyrus the Great, you know, the famous Cyrus Cylinder known as the Edict of Human Rights, small little cylinder in the British Museum. So that that Cyrus the Great really closes the Hebrew Bible as Cyrus making a proclamation saying, the Lord of the heavens has commanded me to allow his children, the children of Israel to go and build their temple in Jerusalem. So that's like, it sounds like a crazy, very like Jewish centric story. But then when that archaeology was found like a hundred years ago in Babylon, it's like, Oh, wow. This is part of an international policy that the Cyrus the Great had enabling people to rebuild their temples under the auspices of the empires. Like, wow. So that's like we're living. That's when the second temple began being built. Right. So we come back and we build the second temple and then uh, we go through this Greek period. And then after the Greeks have run through us, we have this rivalry between the like the descendants of the Maccabees. And we have the Herodian and the Roman. The, and yeah. and then basically the, the Romans come through and take over the world, including us. There's the famous saying, what have the Romans ever done for us? Oh, Python. So that's happening here in Jerusalem. And that's in the Talmud. That conversation yes. is in the Talmud. Right. I don't know if... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's in the Talmud. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Maseket Shabbat, uh, uh, page 33. Okay, yeah. So that, that's a famous... Yeah, 33. Yeah. Wow. That's a famous story where, the, where there's basically different, different sects of Judaism. Some are saying... Should we support the Romans? Should we go against them? And there's one rabbi who's very pro-Romans. He's saying, look how many beautiful things they've done. They've built markets. They've built bridges, roads, sanitation, right? And, and then in the other end, there's other one said, yeah, but they're all doing that for their own interest. They don't really care. And then there's somebody else who just didn't, who said, like, I'm abstaining from the conversation. Yeah. And then there was one person who was a tattletale who went and told the Romans. And the Romans said, that guy got to get killed. This guy is going to get elevated, given grant, you know, Grandeur, and the other one is just going to exile. I mean, the truth is, the, the Talmud version is kind of better than the Monty Python. You could see, like, Monty Python doing a whole movie about that. I mean, yes. like, kind of almost like a, a sequel to Life of Brian. I thought that is Life of Brian. No, Life of Brian is like, well... It's in Life of I, Brian. What have the Romans ever done for us? Is, in is Life that of in Brian? Life of Brian? Yes. Oh, okay. Always okay. look at the bright okay. side of life. It's a... <laughs> <laughs> the Jewish squad. <laughs> the squad. <laughs> so that's here. I mean, you walk the street. Roman roads are a big part of the of, of Israeli of archaeology. You know, you see the Roman roads; they have their milestones. So they really, the Romans really left their infrastructure here. 
It's a major part of, you know, I'm studying, I'm doing a master's in ancient Jewish history. I mean, the Roman period, like there's so much here. They built amphitheaters. Like they, they really terraformed the place. It's hard to walk through Israel without tripping over something Roman. Yes. Literally. Yeah. That is so cool. <laughs> the, the Romans were here, but the, the, if we talk about religion, I think it's important to mention the Herodian period named after Herod the Great, who was like a half Jew who Herod was married. terrible. Yeah, the terrible. He, he was kind of a megalomaniac, but he had some redeeming qualities. And one of the things that he did. No, he didn't. <laughs> the debate continues until today. He was the biggest builder of his time. He completely, just to give you an example, there's a mountain in which he built a, a palace and he was buried in called Herodian, humbly named after himself. It looks like a volcano. Yes. It's like a, it's a hill with a shaved top. Now, the story goes that Herod was walking in the area, it's near the Jordan Valley, and he points to his builders, to his servants, and he says, that's where I want you on that mountain, that hill is where I want you to build my palace. And they say, what hill? And he says, oh, you're going to make the hill. Oh, <laughs> so <laughs> so he, this guy, he really built, he, he really built. And he, what he did is he took the temple, or the second temple, which was rebuilt, you know, after Cyrus the Great, and like triple five quadruple the size of the surface by just elevating the surface of the temple mount which is very small but he he did what he did and he just made a, a large platform he flattened which out which is the, the platform we have oh yeah Herodian. that's there Herodian. You there right. you go yeah. Yeah. i used to be able to see that from my porch uh, oh wow <laughs> yeah yeah oh, you guys everything is so new here in the u.s that it just blows my mind I was doing a tour of Colonial Williamsburg with my kids and mm -hmm. my parents, and my mother or father says to says to my kids, "Okay, so this building over here is really old." And my <laughs> oldest is like, "How old?" And she's like, "400 years old." <laughs> and my kids are like rolling their eyes, like "400 years old." I mean, that's like Ottoman. <laughs> yeah, my backyard is literally my backyard is a wall exposed after 1967. In other words, after the six day war, the place was in ruins and Israel was restoring things. And they uncovered a wall from Hezekiah who built this wall 2,700 years ago. That's literally my childhood stomping grounds. Oh my so you gosh. tell me 400 years, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> the synagogue I prayed in growing up is a building that's about 900 years old. <laughs> that is wild. Yeah, Texas is one of the older places that has, you know, buildings, but it's still from like 16, 1700s. It is so new. <laughs> we are little babies. Yeah, that, that's part of the great value of America. Mm -hmm. The new world. Yeah. The change yeah, to, the world, I mean. you know, kill the native populations and start over. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we talked about it last episode, and I didn't realize mm -hmm. that this area was one of the most, like, important indigenous areas for, like, ceremonial and burial and they and they just built dams on it and didn't even excavate. So there's just you know eleven thousand years worth of yeah. artifacts that were destroyed to build a dam. And I'm like, yeah. they, 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 I could have said they didn't give a dam, but in this case, <laughs> they did the whole damn <laughs> Yeah, damnation. Yeah, that's yes. pretty damning. Pretty damning. Yeah. So to to get back to our narrative about Jerusalem, as we do see it, conquering Jerusalem is about more than just running over us on the way to 
have it out with another empire. So conquering Jerusalem and destroying or controlling the temple is essentially about an attempt to, if I can get theological on you, to rival the God of Israel and concoct an alternative to his sovereignty. In other words, it's basically a rebellion against existence. So when somebody destroys the temple, we see this as very, very bad. And not just for us, but literally for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not that we have all the answers because obviously we're a hot mess and we screwed up everything for everyone. But, you know, like we do control the world, right? Just like all the anti-Semites think. Um, And um, so because we screwed up, as everybody knows from the Bible, you know, God allowed these empires to run over us. And so there are theological implications to everything that's going on. And the, the great hope is that eventually we'll get sufficiently disillusioned, disabused of our illusions, that we'll be able to get beyond our fantasy worlds and actually, you know, be about what's real and rebuild, and rebuild in a real way. And that that will be for the whole world. That's the, the theologically, that's the vision of what the third temple is. In other words, we figure it out. We got our shit together, you know? Mm. Sorry, is that? Uh, <laughs> oh no, no, no! We cuss a lot. Why? It's a bit of a Oh man, that was a Hebrew pun. Oh, I mean, Nachel and his father are both punsters of the highest degree. They're unreal. And they're highest degree of verbal like, punishment. Yeah. Like, and they'll do like three or four languages at once. It's unreal. <laughs> but anyway, the, the part of the point of that theological digression there is to, to point out that this makes our relationship to all these conquerors running over us very complex because on like entry level mind, they're horrific galaxy mind. We brought them on ourselves and they're exactly what we need. Like dark matter mind. It's not a coincidence that the greatest civilizations are the ones that turn on us. Right. So people are like, how could the great Germany destroy the Jews? Well, obviously it was going to be Germany because they were a great civilization and they understood that to establish their primacy, they had to get rid of us. Right. Same thing with Rome. Why is it such a big deal for Rome to conquer us? Well, there are a whole bunch of different things that go into it, but like in some sense, like we're not such a big deal. But then in another sense, you know, there is this temple, this temple rivals the temples throughout the Roman empire. And there's a tremendous amount of wealth there that they're very happy to schlep home. I mean, that, I mean, if we jump in there, just to get, another to, to, to get an, an idea of how much gold, how, the fact that Herod, I mentioned Herod the Great, rebuilt the temple, created a city which became an attraction, an international attraction that Roman historians write about. It brought in like a million tourists a year. I mean, we're talking like crazy numbers that they record. And according to the like official documents from the Roman Empire, the spoils of war from, from the looting of the temple in Jerusalem lowered the price of gold in the Roman Empire by two by like a third or two thirds. It's like an incredible amount. Inflation. The, the price of gold dropped because of how much gold came into the empire. Wow. So Jerusalem was a very wealthy city towards the end of the second temple. Right. There was a finding some of the pottery, I forget if it was first temple or second temple period, but the pottery was found to have just like gold dust in the, in the clay, just because there was so much ambient gold. I haven't heard that one. Yeah. yeah, um, I I think it was a study out of Barilan, but I'm not sure. I got to check. I'm studying there. I should find out. Yeah. It It wasn't Aaron Mara. It was somebody else. Okay. Well, that's cool. Yeah. So yeah, constantly digging up stuff in our backyard. You know. Oh my gosh, my brain is exploding. <laughs> okay, so so Joe, something with Constantine. Con- oh wow, so Ooh. so here's here's the interesting thing. I'll, we can we can argue that until Christianity came on the world scene, 
the land of Israel back in the day, at the time of Constantine, you can say it was known as Palestine, based on the, we mentioned the Philistines earlier. So, you know, parenthetically, Jerusalem was destroyed as suppressing part of a revolt, a very big revolt known as the Bar Kokhba revolt. And after that point, the Romans got the idea that if Jews have access to Jerusalem, their religious spirits are going to be, you know, worked up and they're going to try to liberate Jerusalem and build a temple again. We have to completely sever the Jewish ties to Jerusalem. And they did that by banning Jewish ties to Jerusalem and by renaming the entire area instead of Judea. They took an extinct culture at the time. The Philistines were already extinct, basically gone, and they called it Syria, Palestina. In other words, it's the district of it's Palestine under the district of Syria. So, so that's basically what they did. Now, what happens from then is that Jews are banned from coming to Jerusalem until the Muslim period. In other words, the entire hate beginning of Christianity, the Jews are are banned from Jerusalem, which was renamed Ilia Capitolina. So they changed the name to Ilia, and they changed the name to Ilia, and they banned Jews from from going there. So they really severed that connection. So what is what is Jerusalem now? It's a, it's a city of a province in in, a, in the Roman district of Syria. Okay, it wasn't didn't really have any religious significance. They built temples there for Zeus to sort of like in our face because we had our temple there. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't in really your face Jews. But it wasn't, it wasn't really. <laughs> It wasn't really innately, there wasn't anything special about it. Romans built temples everywhere. But then when Jewish, we can say that because of all of this suppression that in in the Roman period, Jews really wanted to be free. And that's where you have the spirit of Messianism start. And so Christianity is an offshoot of Jesus, who was one of several Jews. There were many different Jews at the time. There were a lot of apocalypse. A lot of apocalypse. And the Romans were like, oh yeah, another one, you know, hang him. Right, but, but like this, they don't want people destabilizing Roman control, which is why they were very, very, let's say, fa- fast at the trigger. Is that the expression about anything f- that's in Hebrew? I guess. That's uh, good. I think yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, as soon as they they hear a hint of messianism, like another Jew is going to get up there, so they had him killed, right? But he had a whole following, which led to Christianity. Mm-hmm. Now, Christianity was basically like Jewish messianism. We're going to be redeemed from this difficult situation. And it found different expressions, physical redemption, spiritual redemption. It, Christianity worked. It trickled down. And then at a certain point, it reached critical mass where the Roman Empire, which was pagan, completely converted to Christianity. And that's the eastern part of the empire, the Holy Roman Empire. That started the year you know, 324 with Constantine the Great. So at that point... Israel suddenly had new significance and was called the Terra Sancta. It was called the Holy Land because that's where Jesus is from. And mm-hmm. this is the path of the crucifixion and the Via Dolorosa. And Israel. all of that only became in effect with the Christianity taking over the Eastern Roman Empire. And that's when you have all the massive churches being built and the Holy Sepulchre and the Church of the This and the Monastery of the That. Because the empire had the funds and the money and they turned Israel into an attraction for all these tourists and pilgrims to come. So Israel became very wealthy under the Byzantine Christian empire. And that lasted for several hundred years until the Muslims came in in the 600s. By the way, if you're, okay, so one of the interesting chapters in all this is Queen Helen coming along. This is Constantine's mother. Yes. She comes along in 326 and she goes through Jerusalem, quote unquote, identifying sites, basically. So she's like, this is the true cross and this is the, 
the site of where Jesus was resurrected. This is where he's resurrected. This is she. She, she goes through. I I dub the thee. I, I dub thee this site, and we shall um, build a church here. So, yeah, <laughs> I mean, that's that's why the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built there. Right. She picked right. out that site. So, okay, I mean, like maybe it's a bit of a chutzpah to come and you know make up like I believe that this is where this should be. On the other hand, it's been very good for the tourist industry. It's good for um, merchandise. Um, <laughs> merchandise, merchandise. But anybody who's interested in doing kind of a deep dive into that. So there's a really, really fascinating historian who's done great work on memory named Mary Caruthers. Um, and she's done work on the early Christians and pilgrimages. I think she's talked about this both in Rome and in Jerusalem. She's got a great book on memory, several great books on memory. So that's just like a nice historical thing yeah, to throw Show out. notes. Show notes, yeah. Yeah, okay. definitely. We talked a little bit about Queen Helen last episode about the relics that she oh, yeah. brought back, yeah. all this stuff, and all yeah. the churches were like, gimme, gimme, and like the stairs, and yeah. Horcruxes. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I think for, for Jews, this one is really weird, like the whole relics thing, because yeah. We, yeah. we don't do that. We like, yeah, we bury, definitely we don't, like we, we associate like um, impurity to anything that's from a body. Like if you, you, know, you touch anything that's from a dead body, you have to like immerse yourself, clean yourself. It's considered impure. And then suddenly, you know, the relic idea is to turn that into something that's like, I don't know, a ticket to heaven. What is it exactly? Because it's sanctity. It's it seems like, it's like part of the things in different places. Sometimes I think it's a spiritual connection. Sometimes it looks like magical powers. I mean, the first I, time, yeah. I, 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 I'm Jewish. I don't know about this. The stuff. first time I heard about relics, you know, I was in the Metropolitan Museum and I'm looking at this nice elaborate gold thing. And then, then I realized that's a tooth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's <a> tooth. <laughs> Yeah, the cathedral here in San Antonio has a, the blood of a pope, and that's their relic. But there's fingers and toes, and there's one Listen, in Jurassic Italy. Park. Yeah, I'm just saying, <laughs> one day you're going to be able to clone that pope. Yeah, it was Pope John Paul II, and then in Italy in Padua, they have a tongue and a throat just ah, hanging yeah. out on a pedestal. Yeah. So yeah, and it's not in formaldehyde. Yeah, and there was times in the medieval area where people were just carrying around basically corpses and suitcases, and that's just wild to really think about. Bring out your dead. Another Monty Python man <laughs> reference. Oh my God. So then, if we jump forward through the Byzantine period, we come to Omar in 630. Oh, that's a great story. So uh, the, the, the Holy Sepulchre is across the plaza. There's a plaza outside and across the street is the mosque of Omar. So Omar is the, the Muslim conqueror of Jerusalem. Now he was a very savvy person. There's interesting stories about him. And this is one of them. He knew that if he would walk into the now conquered, you know, Christian area and walk into the, into the church of the Holy Sepulchre, that would retroactively sanctify the place to Islam and cause a lot of problems. And so we have conquered this for Islam. Right. Mm -hmm. And so to make sure that that doesn't happen, he didn't go there. He stood next door and where he stood, there was erected the mosque of Omar. So fast forwarding until today, the church of the Holy Sepulchre is controlled by several different sects of Christianity. It's amazing if you walk in, right? Because like you've got the, uh, you've been there more recently than I have, but you have like the, the Greek Orthodox area and you have the Coptic area and you have the Roman Catholic area right. and yeah. like the area has its own piece of the cake set up. And right. It's sort of like, I remember kind of like a clover shape almost. Is yeah. that, is yeah, that yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. So like each, 
sect or denomination, I don't know the proper terminology, has like its own sort of chapel and then its own setup in that chapel and then its own art and its own incense. And then you can see where the crusaders like graffiti crosses into the wall. And yeah, graffiti in sacred sites is a big deal. There's a, there's a, there's a professor at Columbia University who wrote a whole book on it called The Writing on the Wall about people oh, editing cool. their names in sacred spaces. And that was considered being connected to it, which today sounds like sacrilege. So it was a big yeah. deal. Wait, Islam has very important sacred graffiti too. When somebody goes on Hajj to Mecca, uh, while they're away, the friends, family, neighbors will come along and graffiti their home what? with like, congratulations on going on Hajj. And then when they come back, they've got this uh, like congratulatory graffiti there. Oh, wow. You see it in the shop. But I didn't know that that's what that was. And some of it, yeah. I've some seen it. Yeah, I've, seen, I've seen the graffiti. I just yeah, didn't yeah. know that that's, I thought it was just graffiti. <laughs> Also, some of it's also just graffiti. But. I've seen it on my neighborhood. I mean, I live in a I live in a semi you know Jewish Arab neighborhood. You walk down the streets and you hear Arabic. You know, I learn Arabic at, down the street from me, uh, and I've seen these these graffiti's of that in Mecca of the um, yeah, yeah 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 the I'm blinking out the the what's it called Kuba yeah Ka- Kaaba. the Kaaba the Kaaba the Kaaba the the basically it's that that block that uh, black the, block that the meteorite that's covered with the, the, the cube that's a yeah. the cube. Yes. <laughs> so yeah, that. So they have they have pictures of that. So where were we? Uh, Omar and the mosque. Oh, so until today, because all of the different sects of Christianity can't decide, you know, who's in power, the keys to the Holy Sepulchre are given to the Muslims. Oh, okay. Yeah, and and they sit there in the entrance. You see elderly Muslims sitting there, and they have the keys. The nuance and subtlety of geopolitics and and yeah. having the right sensibility sensitivity. It's very, very important for everyone to sort of live together. Okay. So yeah. this gets into a question about what does Jerusalem have to do with Islam other than Omar eventually running over it as, you know, you know the Muslim armies ran over a lot of area. You know, so, but is there something particular about Jerusalem? Why would it be such a, a hot topic today and, and whatnot? So there's, if you look in the Quran, you have the, the night journey. Wait, hold on. Is this night journey is Quran? It's not Hadith. No, the the explanation is in the hadith. Uh, Right, okay, yeah. So the, yeah, but the night journey itself, I believe, is recorded in the Quran. And this, I guess, exegetically, it's understood that he, like, took off from Jerusalem. And And met Moses in the sky and jumped here and there and had a lot of back and forth, you know. It's it's very visionary, and we are not experts, so we aren't going to try. We're not not high enough. But retroactively, or however you want to understand that, that was then sort of rooted in Jerusalem. And then this is very interesting. We just found this out. So there was, I mean, like many complex societies, there can be rivalries within the society. And at one point, there was a group of powerful Muslims that was preventing another group of Muslims from visiting Mecca which is a very important obligation for them going on Hajj, going on pilgrimage to Mecca. And that apparently is when Jerusalem started to become like a big thing. They reinterpreted, you know, those passages, like saying that that place there in the edge, El-Aqsa, which is like means there at the far edge of what? Of Mecca, of Medina? They turned it into Jerusalem in a certain way. Like they reinvested meaning into Jerusalem. Yeah, so now Jerusalem became this sort of like backup tourist site for people wanting to go on Hajj. 
Now, then you have the Dome of the Rock that was completed in 1691 by Al-Walid. Um, but we just found out that this might have been originally a Byzantine church, the, the original structure, which maybe we could push back even further because before you had a Byzantine church there, you would have had a temple to Jupiter there that was Roman. I mean, they yeah. do say that the, that the stones of, then, the Holy, of the Holy Sepulchre mm-hmm. from that same period were made from stones of the second temple, which were turned into stones of mm-hmm. the temple of mm-hmm. Jupiter, right. Zeus, Jupiter. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's a lot of stuff is being reused. Yeah. Right? A lot of recycling, very efficient here. Um, and uh, so one point about the, the Dome of the Rock that a lot of people miss on the Temple Mount there, you have the Dome of the Rock with the, the golden dome. That's not a mosque. Right. It's a shrine. It's a shrine. Next okay. to it, you have an enormous mosque, a mosque called the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But those are two separate structures. So the, the Temple Mount there, that's where the temple used to stand. And even the walk, which has been engaged in all kinds of revisionism, because the, 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 Jordanian, the Jordanian police. Yeah, it's actually, it literally means like endowment or something like that, because they're supposed to be in charge of uh, taking care of uh, Muslim property. And so, but it has this kind of militaristic police presence on the Temple Mount. Yeah. So even that organization was calling it the Temple of Solomon into the 1930s until, you know, Recently, it became politically expedient. <laughs> Until, yeah, to, uh, <laughs> politically expedient to revise their literature on that. Yeah, but uh, but inside the Dome of the Rock, you have a rock, hence Dome of the Rock. Very and, descriptive. Yeah, and, uh, <laughs> that that rock's a big deal for us actually, and that's probably why it became a big deal for them. Do you want to say something about that? Oh, I could say first of all that that location, you know, the famous picture of this golden dome, which was only turned into gold like. 40 years ago by King Hussein of Jordan. So it wasn't always gold. So he, that was a donation okay. maybe 40, 50 years ago. Good donation. Yes. Good, good donation. Uh, he said, it's very nice. It's gold. But the inside, there's a, there's a, a stone which has an interesting Jewish tradition behind it. But in terms of architecturally, that was part of the floor in the Holy of Holies, you know, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where jo- Indiana Jones should have been looking for it. So it was there. Like that was the floor. So that's the location of the Holy of Holies in the second and first temple. You can Google this and see the spoon, by the way. Yeah. I guess if I can grind an axe and, um, you know, if anybody wants to blow back against me for this, you're welcome to. Um, You can find me on Twitter (laughs) at Marisimpa. So (laughs) we have this issue with revisionism. So we we have these holy sites like the grave of Yosef or the Joseph or the the grave of uh, Shimon HaTzadik, which then kind of get captured and reappropriated as like, oh no, there's this amazing sheikh who is buried there. And so I feel like this is part of the cultural struggle going on here that's even getting played out uh, with uh, United Nations organizations. Hmm. So what was it? It was the, the, they were, somebody was advocating for the Western Wall to get designated a UN heritage site as I remember something like some that, kind yeah. of Muslim site where it's like, what on earth does this have to do with Islam? This is a wall built by Herod right. where Jews pray. Like, okay. Yeah. But, but the, the locals reading what, what people are talking about as like, what? What's, yeah. What's that? <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of, I mean, we, we had to skip through a lot of stuff here, but mm-hmm. uh, there was a medieval uh, Jewish traveler who recorded all of these graves like the grave of king david the tomb of king david and some of these 
he, we're talking about something in the, the, the 1200th, 13th century. It's the earliest record of such a thing. Like nobody knows where this came from sometimes. Not in all cases. And in some cases, some scholars will say, well, that famous rabbi in that tomb is actually a sheik from so-and-so. So like it goes both ways. You have oh, that. Okay. So right next to the tomb of King David, this was a very striking thing on a tour that uh, that I took when uh, when I was in high school. We had just been to the, the tomb of King David and then they brought us into this other building and they told us this building was built by the Crusaders. It was the place of the Last Supper. Right, the Last Supper. What? <laughs> like, hold on, the Last Supper was before the Crusaders. <laughs> how, how does that work? It's beyond time. I, I Wow. Right, it was rebuilt on top of on the top area of dubbed as. Yeah. I mean, the truth is it would make sense for the Last Supper to be more or less in that location because the Last Supper was a Passover Seder. And if you're going to have a Passover, part of Passover at that time was coming up to the temple. And so you'd want to be inside of the walls you're, of Jerusalem. You're, you're in the that. vicinity. You're in the yeah, neighborhood. In the vicinity right. of Jerusalem. Yeah. Right. Okay. But that gives us transition to the Crusaders. Ooh. Oh, well, man. It, <laughs> So the Crusaders are very, it, it's very ambivalent if you love, if you grew up with Legos, because I used to play with the Crusader sets. I love, I love the knights, like the Crusaders. And you realize that in, in, in the West, people grow up hearing about the Crusaders in one, in a very particular light. And then in Judaism, especially on Tisha B'av, which is a day of lamentation, we lament and read about all these Jewish communities that was destroyed by the Crusaders on their way, on their holy crusade to Israel to rescue it from the infidels or from the, from the Muslims. I mean, that, that's before they even arrived here. Right. right? So on the way, they just d- demolished entire communities. Yeah, that, that's also not just Jewish communities, by right. the way. Right. As they were going yeah. through the Eastern Orthodox Empire, they were they were taking out Christian communities too. Like it was really, the Crusades did a lot of damage. Right. Yeah. And so so the, the, the idea of Crusaders really was like, there was a lot of, it's basically like, I mean, we can relate to that today. There's people in positions of power who make you promises of redemption and cleansing of all your sins. So they take all the worst of society and they make them promises. Just go on this holy crusade and you will be cleansed. And so these, all these people are like criminals and you know, what they go through and they pillage and loot and et cetera. And then they get to the land of Israel and they fight these wars. And so on behalf of the kings or in their fancy palaces. Yeah. <laughs> But here's a good point where you can see progress in Western culture, because eventually you just send them to Australia. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) We're just kind of like streaming at you here. I'm so into this. Please don't stop. (laughs) (laughs) So, So we've got the Crusaders. And at this point, Jews are basically still locked out of Jerusalem. And then Rambam. Uh, should we go to Rambam first? Well, we're gonna have Rambam to skip, first. No, we're gonna have to skip a bunch. Okay, we're okay. So go, over time. we'll go to Salahadin. Well, Salahadin. So Salahadin, tell us about him. Salahadin. Well, what do I know about Salahadin? So, um, <laughs> so he he was this great king, and uh, he was the first to unite all Muslims under his control. I guess basically since the very early split in Islam with Ali. Ali? Ali? Was it with an I or a... Uh, probably Ali. Okay, Ali. Okay. And one of the things that Salah ad did was that he took control of Jerusalem. He didn't have to conquer it, which is fascinating. So yeah. Jerusalem yeah. was, I guess, kind of controlled by the Crusaders and kind of surrendered as part of... I really don't know the details, yeah, it's but not, it became... Let's say in, in that movie, The Kingdom of the, of Heaven, they with... Uh, they, they, with what's, the, what's that guy? William... Bling. 
William. I'm blowing on his name. No, no, that's his name. William is his name in Pirates of the Caribbean. What's the name of that actor? Oh, Orlando Bloom. <laughs> Orlando Bloom. Hey. Thank you. <laughs> so Orlando Bloom plays the plays this this he's on the, the crusader, right? They make an entire war there. That, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and those walls weren't even built yet. Right. So Salah Hadin, one of the really interesting relevant aspects of him today is that he becomes a major trope for contemporary Middle Eastern leaders. So Saddam Hussein and, and many others have basically gotten up and said, you know, I want to be the Salah Adin of the Middle East today, and I'm going to get rid of the Crusaders. They use that terminology, read the U.S. troops or whoever else, uh, who controlled the Holy Land, which sometimes is here or sometimes might be referring to something else. But so Salah Adin becomes this important trope in a contemporary Arab Muslim politics. Yeah. Oh, wow. Well, that's really interesting. Yeah. And that's 1187 that he comes here. So, you know, history has has a long life here. I remember I was talking with some Catholic friends online and there was a discussion where some people were starting to kind of just lay into Islam as like, oh, those barbarians and whatnot. And I was like, "Uh, you might want to just, you know, hold your horses there and not make as if that's so completely other for you. Mm-hmm. Because if you're coming from the Catholic tradition, you remember the Inquisition and they were like, that's a long time ago. And it's like, oh, <laughs> not, for us. not for us. <laughs> <laughs> we remember that vividly. My wife's family left Spain with the Inquisition. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, part of them, the others have been in Italy since basically the Romans took over here. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's, where can we... How about the the Ramban? Ramban, Ramban, yeah, do so, Ramban. Uh, this is like I guess we have like two, three more points. I think we'll try to get to Allenby. That'd be cool. Yeah. Um, so the the Ramban Nahmanides, who is one of the Jewish medieval commentators, we're talking like the year twelve sixty sixty seven. He comes into Jerusalem, and at the time he reports, he records there were only two Jews living in Jerusalem. He names them, and they're painters. So they had a special permit to live in Jerusalem. So there was no Jewish community in Jerusalem pretty much since the destruction of the, of the, of Jerusalem by the Romans. And yeah. so he comes a thousand years more after that destruction and he buys a building. He builds a synagogue, which is until today is known as the Ramban synagogue, Nachmanides synagogue in the old city. I grew up going to that synagogue. That's where I did my bar mitzvah. And, you know, I mean, oh, that's yeah. where I put in my tefillin. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, and that's the center of the old city, right? it's the Jewish quarter. And what's really cool is a nice historical uh, snippet is that the day in which he arrived in Jerusalem is the um, eighth of the month of Elul, one of the Jewish months, which is like somewhere around September. According to Josephus, the great revolt was suppressed. Finally, after the destruction of the temple, battle kept on taking place on the upper city, which is today's old city. And the last day, the day it was burned is the day before that on the calendar. So it was, it's just an, like an, a, this historic continuity that we have in our consciousness of like, it was destroyed on the eighth day of that month, on the seventh day, and on the eighth day, you know, a thousand hundred years la- and a hundred years later, the Jewish community continued in the old city, in and, Jerusalem. Yeah, so Ramban and Nachmanides essentially restarts the Jewish community in Jerusalem, in the old city of Jerusalem. And... Then we have, okay, well, this is jumping ahead several hundred years. but uh, yeah. Ottomans, well, I mean, Ottomans and Allenby, I think is great. Yeah, I mean, like, yeah. I guess one, one important footnote is that the Spanish Inquisition 
leads to so Spain was probably the biggest Jewish community. Now, that was the that golden time. age of the, the golden Jewish age of yeah. Spain. I mean, Poland oh, okay. at that time also had a huge Jewish community, but Spain was really like the intellectual center of Jewish life at the time, right. and a huge Jewish population. The Spanish expulsion was I mean, not only a disaster for us; it was a disaster for Spain. Right. Their um, economy, yeah, plummeted. Oh, but, the, but that wound up sending out Jews across basically Asia. And going, so, going from Christian controlled, like Inquisition controlled, you know, the Christianity to Muslim countries. And so many Jews, you know, joined, they went to Amsterdam, they went to Northern, uh, to, they went to Florence, right? Like the Renaissance mm-hmm. is, is the height of Florentine Judaism, which happened at the same time as the Spanish Inquisition. But many Jews went to Turkey. And until very recently, the Turkish government took pride and we took the Jews in. We're protecting our Jewish citizens. It was a big deal for like 500 years. Yeah. One, wow. one thing about the, the Spanish expulsion, because these are terms that people uh, hear pretty frequently. We talk about Ashkenazi Jews and Sephardi Jews, right? Have you heard those terms before? Yes, I heard those. Yeah. Okay. So Ashkenazi Jews are Jews who are, I mean, there's a lot of different kinds of Ashkenazi, but Poland, Germany, Russia, Eastern like Europe, Eastern-ish Europe that, that kind of stuff. That's where my family was before they moved to America, before I came here. My wife's family, part of them were in Spain. So where did the Jews in Spain go? They went literally all over the place. Now, Spain was this cultural powerhouse. And when they diffused you know, through North Africa and the Middle East, going all the way out through the, the Silk Road, they carried their culture with them. And because the culture was so sophisticated, it wound up kind of resetting a lot of the defaults. So we talk about Middle Eastern Jewish communities very frequently as Sfaradi. Sfaradi is literally Spanish. Like in what sense is an Iraqi community Spanish? Well, Iraq absorbed a lot of the cultural influence of Spain because of that. It's funny, Dafka in the case of Iraq, because Iraq was, you know, the major center of Jewish learning. Remember, for Iraq, of years. you think of, you know, the temple, the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. And since mm-hmm. then, there's been a Jewish community in Babylon. So Iraq, Babylon is like, we are the old timers. Who are you guys? Right? We're the real deal. Right. Basically, up until the time of the, the rise of the Ba'ath Party in Iraq, you had a very, very vital Jewish community there. I had no um, idea. That yeah, is so about, cool. Yeah, a Jewish community more than 2,000 years old in Iraq, which was, I mean, huge centers of Jewish learning for hundreds of years was there. And okay, so we should keep moving that. Yeah. yeah. So here, I think there's a nice, a nice way to wrap up is that the Ottomans, uh, and I'm not talking about those couches. So when the <laughs> Ottomans, when the Ottomans get comfortable, when the Ottomans came to Israel, that's like the year 1516, uh, that's when they conquered Israel. They were in Israel all the way, or Palestine, all the way until their defeat in World War I. And when they were defeated in World War I, General Allenby came into the old city. And this is a beautiful story. So to, to backtrack, several decades before him, Kaiser Wilhelm II uh, comes in with his chariot. And of course, the Ottomans want him to come in because he's going to make some very nice donations. And the Ottomans were all a lot about, you know, bakshish, you know, getting the money, you know, like that. So everybody knew if you want to get anything done in the Ottoman uh, Ottoman government, all you got to do is to grease the right hands. That's everybody. It's called bakshish. So that was just, that was just part of how it, that was standard procedure. Welcome to the Middle East. Welcome to the Middle East. We like you very much. And 
he would not come in without his chariot and his four horses. So the Ottomans blasted a hole in the wall and opened up today the road into the Jaffa Gate where the public transportation goes through because he would not get off his horse. So that means he wouldn't get off his high horse. Kaiser Wilhelm II, like, of course, he wouldn't get off his, his horse. General Allenby, there's some footage of this online. You see it's a very impressive horse. And he comes in and they just conquered the Ottomans. He gets off his horse and he says, I want to walk into Jerusalem like a pilgrim. And he gets off his horse and walks in, in contrast with Kaiser Wilhelm. And that is a very powerful sight to see. It's a very, very famous, it's recorded on video. You know, it's very, very powerful to see that. And what they say is that the, um, when the Ottomans lost the war, Jerusalem was still, you know, in part of the battle. The The British didn't even know they won the war yet. And the mayor of Jerusalem, the Ottoman mayor of Jerusalem comes out, this is in the winter, he comes out wearing his jalabiya, you know, his dress in the cold to personally surrender to these two generals who happen to be there, not generals, like lower ranking officers. They're like, what are you talking about? I don't know, go, go back home. They send him back four times until he gets to the right position of power. He comes to Allenby himself and he wants to personally surrender. And this was in the winter, and he's going back and forth in his robes. He ended up dying from pneumonia two weeks later. Oh, no. (laughs) Pretty awful story. Uh, But that was, since then, you have the the British mandate. You know, that's General Allenby walking into Jerusalem, getting off his horse like a pilgrim, really tying it full circle with the sense of the Holy Land. Like, I'm here as a person. History is bigger than me, you know? Oh, I love that. Even though I'm the British Empire. But, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. he's he's humble. I think it would be hard for anybody not to be humbled by being there. The history is, it's bigger than all of us. That is so powerful. You guys have taught me so much. <laughs> brain. I'm shocked at how much I didn't know. And it's wow. just so exciting to hear it from a perspective of people that live there. Like, yeah. like you said, you can see these artifacts and temples and oh, it's just, it's amazing. Well, you have to come and visit us. Come and hang oh, out. Oh, I want to so bad. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, my sister had a trip planned and, so it'll be postponed. So maybe I can just hitch a ride. <laughs> Take this, me with you. All this history is making me thirsty. <laughs> we, need to, we need to make a, you know, I had, we had a friend of late memory, uh, Pinchas, he used to say, little did we know that one day we would say, L'chaim in Yerushalayim, hey, hey, hey. You know, like L'chaim in Jerusalem. That, that was his thing. You know, he never thought he would, he would be here and he ended up coming here. And like, that was his life. <laughs> that, that is a crazy thing to like, <laughs> That we get to live here? Like, really? (laughs) That was a really long time that Jews weren't allowed to be in their city. That is insane. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Can we have our city back? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) If anybody has any questions, we could take questions, too. We might not have the answer. We're happy to hear questions. (laughs) What is your education in? I know you said that you're in graduate school. You finished graduate school. I'm partially educated. (laughs) (laughs) what what was it mark twain said despite school i managed to stay i didn't let the school get in the way of my education i always learned (laughs) except when i was in school or something like that yeah well i i know i went back i have a bachelor's in uh biblical studies and mass communications and uh, a master's in in jewish education and i'm working on on a second master's in ancient jewish history oh wow and my bachelor's are in philosophy and music and I did a bunch of ancient Greek and math, and I started PhDs in uh, Jewish philosophy and in brain science, but then my advisor died. 
Oh no. <laughs> That's a philosophical pickle right there. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> oh, and and how many languages do you guys know? You say you know a little bit of between the two of us? Well, I speak Hebrew English. I'm quite fluent in Portuguese, which means I can sort of get by in Spanish. And uh, I'm learning Arabic now, so I wouldn't say I can speak it yet. So I do uh, Hebrew, English. You know, we both do Aramaic. Um, Biblical, uh, Talmudic Aramaic, not yeah. conversational. Yeah, uh, not usually, right? And um, I, I used to do Japanese and Greek. And and I'm, I can be a little dangerous in Italian, enough to argue with my mother-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> that is incredible. Oh my god. Oh, I have an amazing I have an amazing story about my mother-in-law. So, she she speaks two languages. She she speaks Italian and French. And uh she was here visiting us. It was, you know, a few hours before Shabbat, we're getting getting ourselves together uh because we don't purchase things or do work on Shabbat, so you have to prepare everything beforehand. So, we're walking around in uh, the Emeker Faim area. Uh, this kind of well, it used to be a nice, like a street. It used to be a really a nice street filled with shops and bakeries and that kind of stuff. Now it's a bit of a ghost town. And she and I are doing some errands around there, and we go to this beautiful French bakery. And the guy I usually talk to there is busy with a dozen other customers. And so I'm looking at the owner who doesn't really speak Hebrew very well, and I'm trying to communicate to him, and it's not working out so well. And then I turn to her go. Oh, you speak French. You just talk to him, right? So she starts talking to him and they carry out business in French. And then we're walking along and I'm chatting with some friend I meet on the street in English and then with another friend in Hebrew. And then we walk into the post office and she and I are chit-chatting in Italian as we're in line. And we get up to the window and the guy at the window, without missing a beat, starts talking to her in a language which is not Italian, but it's awfully close. So... I no longer understand him, but she understands him and he understands her. So she's just talking to him in Italian and he's talking back and whatever he's talking. Whoa. So I say, what language are you speaking? And he says, Ladino, my family's from Turkey. <laughs> so Ladino is like the Sephardi Yiddish. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like, like the Judahized Spanish. Sort that of. Yeah. So cool. so yeah, so you have this uh, Jewish Romantic language, Romance language, which is uh, Ladino. You have this Jewish Germanic language, which is Lid Yiddish. There's about fourteen of them. Like you, like you have Judeo Arabic, yeah, which is a big deal. Like Jews, yeah. like 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 it's a Jewish version of the language that they're speaking. It just has like, you know, if you watch Fiddler on the Roof, you kind of get the idea of what Yiddish is. It's like a language that has between the lines complaining about the condition of life, right? So each culture has their own version. Not not everyone is complainers, but that's a very <laughs> Yiddish gets like oy vey, like oy vey, like that's that that's stuck in all the Mel Brooks movies. Okay, oh, yeah. <laughs> he displays the, this shows you the Spanish Inquisition, which had nothing to do with that. But like oy vey, oy. <laughs> it's almost Talmudic. By he, oh my god, <laughs> that's the origin of it. I'm sure. By he, oy vey. Manamana. <laughs> <laughs> the first Pasuk of the Megillah. Are you aren't doing Chazar? Now? You're, you're getting a reverse boring. exegetical one. Okay, anyway. <laughs> All right. Okay. Oh, man. COVID over there. You guys still have stay-at-home orders or are you like masked still? Or? We're in a sort of like in the middle of 
almost reaching half the population vaccinated to having like easing up restrictions. Shops are beginning to open up that you need to have a limited amount of people. Everyone's walking around wearing masks. Today was the first day in a long time that my kids were physically back in school. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And people are worried that that's going to lead to a fourth lockdown. We'll see. Yeah. What can you do? <laughs> we're all just doing what we can. Yeah, we're trying fourth to. Lockdown, fourth election. Yeah. To speak about the apocalypse. That's Isn't that the, the crazy mutant in the X-Men? Oh, never mind. I'm geeking out here. I, yeah. uh, <laughs> yes, it I is. Know that, I know that there are not mechanical solutions to these things that really work. So we all yeah. have to. Uh, yeah. Hold on to your respective religions and pray for the best. Exactly. <laughs> Do you guys have a lot of pushback over there for people that don't want to get vaccinated or like anti-vaskers or is that a uniquely United States? You, you are getting that. I know a lot of friends who are doing that, especially uh, Jews from the former Soviet Union, because they're like, this is 1984 all over again. Like, oh, even yeah, if the vaccine sense. part is correct, the way the government's going about it, it's too much power, too much control. Like, like we, we don't we don't like this. And so I've argued mm-hmm. myself blue with one of my old roommates about that. It's like, he won't have it. You know, it's like, it's not about the vaccine. It's the fact that they give you a special passport that says has been vaccinated. Yeah. And that gives you like, I don't like that. <laughs> I'm allergic to that. <laughs> you <laughs> that have people sense. like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for my segment, I did random and my word was vestments. And that was given to me by Taru, who is my Patreon from Finland. And I just, she's the best. Uh, <laughs> we're going to switch gears and go a little Catholic. I am not Catholic, so bear with me. (laughs) I am not ashamed to say that I sought out like a Catholic Bible study for children to see where to start. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, explain it to me like a child. You know, Protestantism is not very ceremonial on purpose to really distance itself from Catholicism. So up until I was a teenager, my family wasn't very religious at all. So I had no concept and I went to a Catholic funeral once and it just I felt culture shock like I had never felt before. So a lot of religions do have vestments. So that includes Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, Anglicans, Lutherans, Episcopalians, and there's a few more. I know Methodists have a form of the robe and a couple of Protestants have a little bit, but not all of them. So it's a little more liturgical Protestants. Yes. For the sake of this story, we're going to stick with Roman Catholics and what the Vatican says. Vestments were originally just everyday garments of the ancient Roman world. The only difference is that if you were going to use it for the church, it had to be meticulously cleaned and it had to be like purely white. And that was the only rule in the beginning. All right. So the Greeks believed that the tunic that draped from the shoulder was symbolic of the body and its movements. They believed that the envelope and cloak around the body with the head in the center expressed the spiritual and intellectual perfection of man. Roman world. Man is intellectually perfect. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's very true. In the Roman world during the second century, the Dalmatic, which is a loose, unbelted tunic with a very wide sleeve, came about. It was the outer garment worn over a long white tunic. And interestingly, it was striped. And for the most part, it was the outer garment still worn by Catholic deacons today. Katona costume. <laughs> Joseph's technicolor coat, you know, the stripes. Yeah. You know, yeah. yeah. And then around the fourth century, modifications began to be made to the form of the garments. It was also about this time that the stole began to be used as official symbols of holy priesthood. So the What's little- a stole? 
I have, oh, I have pictures. <laughs> it's like a thin thing of fabric and it's really long and then it dra- drapes around your neck. So uh, like in the oh, U.S., cool. yeah, we have stoles for like graduations and stuff too here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, all right. So this is like a little drawing. No, got it. <laughs> got it. All right. Cool. Now I got what you're talking about. Okay. Yeah. Something to look at while we go through these. The first mention of the special liturgical garments for sacred worship came from Theodoret of Cyrus. Pronunciation. This is about 457 CE. In his writing on church history, he noted that in 330, Emperor Constantine presented the new church in Jerusalem a sacred robe, which was to be used by the bishop at baptisms and at Easter. Again, Mm. talking about the old history. So 330 was the first time somebody's like, oh yeah, this particular, wear this. Hmm. Documents during this time also reflected the fact that many were divided on the question of special liturgical vestments. For instance, the early Christian author Tertullian, yeah, that's it. See, the hillbilly, I just cannot, (laughs) rejected special dress while Clement of Alexandria advocated for it. So Pope Clement I, during his pontificate in the first century, noted that bishops should be distinguished from people by costume, but not doctrine. Huh. Things are a little changing. So in the beginning, everybody looked the same. They decided to be clean. And then now the church is saying we have to look completely different than everybody else. Set us apart. Mm. About the 6th century, these tunics went out of fashion in civil life, but retained its services in the church and developed into the various forms of liturgical vestments we see today. By the 9th century, the plain vestments of the old tended to be more and more elaborately decorated. And... Mm. They're an art form in their own right, so especially Byzantine era. The gold and the, yeah. the patterns, it's absolutely oh, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. And it's around this time that the gloves appeared. So now they're wearing the silk gloves that also have gold and all the elaborate designs on them. The miter or the ceremonial headdress is started to be seen on all the bishops. Those are the pointy crown looking hats. Yeah. Okay. The Pope wears oh. one. Yeah. Mallage. When, that, <laughs> yes. That that guy. <laughs> when would they wear silk gloves? Were they like just part of the whole thing? I wonder, like, can you wear them? Must you wear them when you're dealing out the host during Eucharist? Yeah, what were you saying? Oh, I was like, yeah, the gloves would be for like very special ceremonial masses. So not everyday wear, but a special mass they would wear them. Hmm. I was just thinking because we have this thing where a a Kohen, a priest, should not wear gloves. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, you, you want direct contact with the uh, with the sacrifices that are being brought. Right. Okay, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the gloves showed up in the 10th century, and then the shoes and stockings worn by bishops and cardinals appeared in the 11th century. So they're all very. The design is very specific, and the colors all have several separate meanings. And we'll get into the colors here in a little bit. Hmm. Catholic churches had essentially established their final form in about the 13th century. So that's really interesting to me Hmm. that what we see today in churches has been around Hmm. since the 13th century. They are Hmm. nothing but if not traditional. (laughs) Hmm. I guess like you'd have these uh, different kind of reform movements like the Dominicans and the Franciscans who would probably Hmm. rebel against some of the, like they, they were going in for simple, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely, you know, sects of Christianity and other religions that the focus is more on being as modest as possible and more purity. So, yeah, you will see that Uh, things like Eastern Orthodox and Catholics, they they stayed pretty elaborate. 
Um, there are mm-hmm. some, even today, some popes that choose to be more simple. And then there's other popes, like we'll talk about, that brought back all the very bougie stuff. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, all, it's all very different, depending on... Like John Paul didn't wear the pink shoes. And then yeah. uh, what, from Germany, what was his name? He brought back the pink shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Benedict the 16th. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah, he brought back a lot of the fancy stuff. Because, yeah, Pope John Paul got rid of a lot of the really elaborate and over-the-top stuff. Vatican uh, 2.0. Yes. So there was a vestments controversy that arose during the English Reformation. Huge part of that was like deciding whether or not they wanted to keep this. Like, should Mm. we have vestments going forward or not? And a lot of it was initiated by John Hooper's rejection of clerical vestments in the Church of England under Edward VI. And then later it was brought up again under Elizabeth I. So that could be his whole whole episode in its own that I'll probably do someday, but it's just really interesting that they were trying to distance themselves from Catholics as much as they could, and they wanted to keep some stuff, but I, I found it really interesting that the clothing was kind of the thing that was, like, right in the center. Like, should we have ceremonial garb or not? Like, mm-hmm. what does that mean for where we go? Alright, so beyond the historical circumstances, the sacred vestments had an important function in the liturgical celebrations. The fact that they were not worn in ordinary life was part of that. So it showed that as soon as you put Mm. this on, it was time to celebrate something divine. Mm. Mm -hmm. And all this is from the Vatican. So it says one might say that the camouflaging of the minister's body by the vestments depersonalizes him in a way. The idea is as soon as you put these on, you are a symbol of Christ and you're no longer man. So it kind of elevates you. He who performs the liturgical function does not do so as a private person, but as a minister of the church and an instrument in the hands of Jesus Christ. The sacred character of the vestments also has to do with their being donned according to what is prescribed in Roman ritual. At the beginning of his vesting, so that's what they call putting on this outfit, he washes his hands, recites an appropriate prayer. Beyond the practical hygiene purpose, this act has a profound symbolism in so much as it signifies passage from the profane to the sacred, from the world of sin to the pure, to the sanctuary of the Most High, the washing of the hands is some of the manner equivalent to removing the sandals before the burning bush. Hand washing is a big deal in in our temple too. Yeah. Well, also foot washing. Also foot washing. Yeah, but only in the temple. Yeah. yeah. When I'm talking about priests, that's not rabbis. Rabbis are not priests. No. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Just footnote. <laughs> yeah. All right. So putting this on. So they've washed their hands. And the first thing they have is the amis. So it's a long rectangle linen cloth and it has two strings. So they place it over their shoulders. Well, at first they put it over their head and say a prayer. And then they put it over their shoulders and wrap it around. And then they will tuck it into the collar. And uh, I saw one priest say that, you know, it covers your clothes, but then it also catches your sweat. (laughs) It's just like as a purpose, it helps with that too. So. And then it has two strings, so they wrap it around, and then it comes down and wraps at their waist. And it symbolizes purity as well. So there's a lot of purity references in all of this. So if you're a priest, you might be wearing like a sweatsuit yes. underneath. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a lot of layers, a lot of layers that I did not realize. They must be so hot. <laughs> All right, so until 1972, the Amis was an obligatory vestment that you had to wear it. Now it's kind of optional, provided that when you're wearing the rest of it, you can't see your underclothes. 
The Amis is associated with the, quote, helm of salvation. While putting it on, the priest would say, quote, Lord, give me strength to conquer the temptations of the devil, end quote. So then the next layer is the alb, which is that white plain robe. It's white linen worn by the priest during Holy Mass. It symbolizes the innocence and purity that should be adorned the soul of the priest who ascends to the altar, similar to the white you wear after a baptism in Christianity. While it is white in the Western church, it can be any color in the Eastern church. Over the alb and around the waist is a thing called a cincture, which is this little ropey yeah. thing on the... I mean, cintura is, means belt in Spanish. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly yeah. what it is. So it's a... Cinturon, really, cinturon. It's a really garden. Mm -hmm. And again, it kind of looks like the cord you have at graduation. So yeah, it's very mm -hmm. thick cord made of wool or any other yes. kind of material similar. And it also symbolizes purity. For deacons, priests, and bishops, the cincture may be of different colors, and that is dependent on the day. So if it's a certain feast day, it might be a different color. That's not a karate thing. <laughs> no, karate. it's not. <laughs> So next is the maniple, which is this arm thing right here. And it is a liturgical dress used in the celebration of really high holy mass in Roman Rite. And it fell into disuse in the years of the post-conciliar reform, even though it was never revoked. So you can use it, but most people don't use that anymore. Hmm. The stole, so down here in the bottom right, is a distinctive element of the raiment of the ordained minister, and it's always worn in the celebration of sacraments and sacramentals. It symbolizes the yoke of Christ. So just like a water yoke, you, know, you put over your shoulder to hold the water, it makes the water lighter and you can walk with better ease. The idea is that's how Christ is to you. Like he makes things lighter, he takes your burdens and all that good stuff. So lots of symbolism. And this will change colors depending on the feast day and what type of mass you're doing as well it will match the next thing we're going to talk about which is the chasuble it's a poncho type thing so you have a hole for the head and then it's very very long so it's going to go to the knees but you don't have sleeves but if you're a deacon so before you can become a priest you're a deacon they actually have sleeves that's because they're the ones that are doing things to the altar and they're reaching and grabbing things. So the sleeves make it a little bit easier for them to move around. But then once they become an actual priest, they move up to the chasuble. And the colors all have their own meanings. The green is the one they're going to use most often. It's worn by priests during much of the year and it's described as just an ordinary time. So just your basic mass. It symbolizes nature, life, and growth. And then next is white, and it's worn on major feast days and during Christmas and Easter. White is a joyful color that represents the resurrection. Red symbolizes blood and fire. It's worn on Palm Sunday, the Pentecost Sunday, and to celebrate the sacrament of confirmation. And due to its association with martyrs, it's also a garment worn by priests on the feast days of martyrs. These symbols are pretty intuitive. Yeah. <laughs> Purple is worn during Lent, which is right now, so that's cool. And it symbolizes penance and repentance, which hmm. with everything going on this week, I forgot it was Ash Wednesday. I was like, whoops. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm Catholic, but I like to I like to know what's going on. But I was kind of wondering how Catholics were gonna they couldn't go get their ashes this year, at least Texas. So I was wondering how that was gonna work. Hmm. Can you do the ashes on your own or do they need to come from a priest? Yeah, they need to come from a priest. Okay, this is future Kina coming in, old-timey news style. 
I did find out the answer to this. So in San Antonio, the San Fernando Cathedral, Archbishop sent out a dispensation on abstinence and fasting, and then ashes were distributed later on that Sunday when the weather got better. Okay, take it away, Pasquina. All right. So rose pink is a color that can be worn on two Sundays a year and a third Sunday of Advent, fourth Sunday of Lent, and it represents the softening of the remorseful tone of the two seasons. And then there's also black, which isn't seen very often, but it can be worn during the Office of the Dead, and it can also be worn on Black Friday. Wait, which that I don't... that's not Thanksgiving, right? That's no. A different so Good Friday is the Friday before Easter. So technically, the day died, and then Sunday is the resurrection. Yeah. I'm, cool. I'm just concerned about the colorblind blind priest. Like you come out and right? you're just like, oh, it's that feast day. It's like, oh, wait, don't screw up. You just confused <laughs> everyone. <laughs> yes. And then the Pope has his own wardrobe and it has its own symbolism. So in the decades since the Second Vatican Council that ended in 1962, the popes have significantly dressed down. They got rid of all the gold and all the jewels and all the crowns and stuff. Like we talked about, Pope John Paul was like, we don't need that. (laughs) See, that's the thing. When you've got Italian popes, they're all like really high style, the fancy Mm -hmm. Italian suits. And then, you know, you bring in a Polish pope and he's like, you're a very simple guy. Yeah. (laughs) The Polish Jewish jokes are running through my mind right now. (laughs) (laughs) So his little little hat, his little uh, triangular hat that is a miter. And it's worn by popes as well as bishops and cardinals. Theirs look a little bit different. It denotes authority and have long been worn during special religious ceremonies. Each pope has a variety of them that he wears and fashions in his own way. So some have like the pure white ones. He had the gold one. Um, they just kind of differ depending on your style, I guess. They have different heights. Here we go. Oops, wrong. So that's why the bishops in chess have that shape. Yeah. So this shows kind of like an evolution of them throughout the years. So this is from like 11th century to now. Kind of looks like an origami <laughs> type of situation. Yeah. I was thinking of jellyfish at first. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they do have little dangly bits. So historically, the Pope would wear red shoes. We talked a little bit earlier. The red is said to symbolize the blood of the martyrs that have died. While Pope the Francis is often... Definitely pink. Yeah, yeah. They're supposed to be red. Lots of blood references. Yeah, blood's really big in Catholicism. Like the blood of <laughs> Jesus, the blood of the martyrs, blood. It's, a, it's very interesting. It's probably weird to other religions being like yeah, drinking the blood definitely. of Jesus and eating his yes. body. <laughs> Because even Baptists do that, not as often, and it's not real wine or anything, but you have the grape juice and the cracker to symbolize the Eucharist, but it's cannibalism. It is cannibalism. I I was holding back. Yeah, yeah. We're like, all roads lead to cannibalism on this podcast. And Pope Francis has opted for brown shoes instead of red, but Pope Benedict the 16th before him was all about the red shoes. So again, they all can pick their own little styles. Francis seems to be a little bit more toned down than benedict the santa hat (laughs) (laughs) is is that for christmas winter it's his winter style okay i couldn't it took me a second to realize that this that's a serious picture it is (laughs) oh man so yeah benedict brought back a lot because nobody else wore this hat for a really long time but he brought it Um. back 
So derived from a small brimless hat worn by the ancient Romans called a peleus, the zucchetto is a silk skull cap. I think we've all seen the popes and the them wearing that. Uh, worn alone, and it's also underneath the miter, so they wear it underneath all their other hats. And then the color of it represents the wearer's rank in the church. So the bishops wear purple, cardinals wear red, and then white is used solely for the Pope. Hmm. The pallium is a thin woolen shawl worn during mass and on special occasions. So that's your cape. It's also called a cope. And it goes all the way down to the floor. It's typically been very symmetrical, runs down the center of the Pope's body. Popes before Benedict XVI occasionally wore like an asymmetrical Eastern style one. But after him, he brought back like the fur line and red and all the really fancy ones. And then most senior fashion designers, like we're going to make the Pope fabulous. Yeah, I was actually looking at some YouTube and it showed like the, the papal fashion people that make these and they embroider and stuff. So. I mean, there's hmm. people that are doing it. I'm sure there's some that are, you know, historical that they might wear for maybe like their, oh, I almost said coronation. That's not the word for Pope. What's it called? They probably have really interesting restoration work on. Oh, I'm sure. Oh, to be a Vatican historian. The things you could see there. I would die. I, oh, the archive. Oh, it's my <laughs> yeah. dream to know what's actually in there. <laughs> Take the menorah out of the Vatican basement. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they have everything from every religion. They've been hoarding that for centuries. Too. So this in the picture is a red velvet cap with ermine fringe called a Camaru. And it's it looks like Santa's hat, but it's worn only by the Pope and only in winter. And I just like at all fashion statements that you want to bring back. That's what he went with. <laughs> <laughs> Which I mean... Do you do you, Pope? But I was like, he looked like Santa. <laughs> and then there's a summer equivalent. You wear this fancy little hat. Oh, there you go. Keep the sun out of your face. Yeah, it's called a Saturno. And it's wide brim. It's red as well. And it gets its name from the resemblance of the planet Saturn and its rings, which I found really interesting <laughs> for the Catholics to have anything named after, you know, like Saturn, yeah. which was very uh, pagan, you know god reference that's what went in my head but probably not maybe it's just the planet maybe i'm overthinking it <laughs> and saturnalia is in the winter anyway mm -hmm. and unlike the winter hat this is not unique just to the pope so other bishops and cardinals can wear these as well so a mantum is a long cape that the pope wears as a sign of their authority it fell out of use but it was revived again by benedict the 16th hmm. seems to be a running theme like anything that Everybody else was like, nah, we're good. He's like, no, bring it back. They're like, oh, here we go. Here's his fancy little coat. Wow. <laughs> wow. And that he looks is, like a king. Like, it looks yeah, like right. royalty. It looks like he's draped like Queen Elizabeth's capes when she's in her little throne thing. And he's sitting in like a little throne thing. So it's very. He is a little royalty, right? I mean, that's yeah. the idea. Yeah. The throne. Whew. Wow. That's great. Okay, I know what I'm dressing up as for porn. <laughs> yeah, five, days, five days to five prepare days to, get that. to get that thing embroidered. Do you think it's lended to me? <laughs> um, no. So this bad boy is from the 8th century, and it went into the 20th century, but they were coronated using a three-tiered crown called a trirignum or just a tiara. This thing is huge, and it is just... How did this thing last? Like, where I, was it? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, it's just been at the Vatican, but they stopped using it. But it it must be worth millions, if not billions. The amount of jewels, just and how heavy would that be? It's just pure gold. <laughs> so, like many of the finer vestments, tiaras went out of style following the Vatican II and the decree by Paul or Paul the Sixth. Paul actually renounced a special tiara made especially for him by the city of Milan, and he only wore it briefly at his coronation, and then was like, "Nah, I'm good." So there were different ones. So this might be that. I'll have to look to see if, which one that one is. But they have these like museums. And the Vatican has, you know, some of the super old ones. I don't think anybody can actually see them. But the last one was auctioned off. And it was purchased by, purchased by American Catholics. And it's on display at the Basilica of the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception. So it's in the U.S. And the last one to be worn was 1963. That's a huge crown. That's. Be concerned about it falling off my head. You know, it falls off and the little cross on top breaks off. It's like, oh, oh yeah. I have to send that back to the Vatican workshop. <laughs> how, do how do you sneeze? I sneeze. <laughs> <laughs> you don't break your toe. <laughs> so, Keen, if you got to be the Pope, what would your Pope name be? Oh, Lord. Really trying to think of some of the funnier ones from like way back. Oh, in the comments, we've got some good Pope name suggestions. Oh god. <laughs> Zephyrinus Hygienus. Hygienus. <laughs> there was a Pope Conan. Oh, Pope Conan. I get that reference. My name means Conan, like the barbarian. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I I would be Pope Contentious. <laughs> uh, and then, like another cool thing, the Pope has his own special ring called the Fisherman's Ring. It's technically the official seal, and it's exclusively only to him. So a letter written by Pope Clement IV to his nephew in 1265 includes the earliest known mention of these rings, and it was used for sealing all his private correspondence. A new ring is cast for each pope as a general practice of the tradition, and it will have a relief image, and then it will have his name inscribed into it. And then upon his death, the ring is used ceremonially. It's destroyed by a hammer. Have you ever seen the Da Vinci Code, the third one? It shows them doing that. They have like a chisel. I just read read the book. book. Okay, yeah. So the one about the the plague. (laughs) Oh, the third one. Uh, I can't remember what it's called. There's more than one Da Vinci Code? Yeah, I thought there was. Well, it's the... Devils and demons or... Yeah, angels and demons. Yeah, yeah. So the... Angels and demons. Equal... And then I think there's a third one. But there's one. It's about a plague. And they're at the Vatican. And they they break the ring. Hmm. What is the oh, when the Pope. Does the Pope die? Is that a spoiler? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> Whoops. Spoiler. Uh, <laughs> and Brown Plague. Inferno. Okay. So his. Inferno. Okay. Dan Brown's Inferno. So if you've seen that movie, it shows <laughs> Ewan McGregor breaking the ring. In 2018, the Metropolitan Museum of Art had the Heavenly Bodies exhibit, which was really, really cool, and explored the fashion's ongoing engagement with, you know, vestments. It featured papal robes and accessories from the Sistine Chapels. Is it a sacristy? Sacristy? Oh, man, I suck at words. And many of which have never been seen before. So the Vatican lent out vestments that had never been seen by the public for this exhibit, which is really interesting. I remember that exhibit, yeah. 
Yeah, and it was the most popular show in their history. It drew 1.7 million visitors and it smashed a 40-year record that was previously held by King Tut. Wow. Wow. King Tut. I didn't realize. (laughs) I knew it was popular, but I had no idea it was that popular. It was pretty gentle. It was really cool. I've seen pictures. I mean, obviously, they didn't have all of it where you could see it, but it looked really interesting. And it had things from modern designers like Versace and Alexander McQueen. And then it had the actual clothes from the Vatican City. And of course, the Met Ball really drew a lot of attention. The Met Gala was coincided with this yeah, so you had like Rihanna dressed up like a sexy pope. <laughs> like, yes, very. <laughs> it was really interesting because I was like, "Is that sacrilege? I don't know." But yeah, the Vatican okayed it, so I thought that was really interesting too. And it was also the largest exhibit they'd ever had. It was sixty thousand square feet in twenty-five galleries. Wow! Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was all over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, so that was really cool. I wish I would have seen it. And other religions have symbolic clothing as well. I'm not going to talk about all of them because we'd be here forever, but I just grabbed a couple. So there is not a religion really locally, universally, that does not have some sort of relationship between the body and God. So it could either be like what you put into your body or what you put on your body. There's a connection. So that's probably why clothing has been so symbolic. So for priests, you know, this is for very special occasions. Every day they still have things called cassocks which are just those black robes that have the 33 buttons, which represents the 33 years of Jesus's life, which I did not realize that that was how many buttons I had. <laughs> well, Dante and also then, has the 33 repeating motif in the, in the divine com, you know, through, through, oh, through the divine comedy. Yeah. The 33 yeah. content, lines in each content. That's what Inferno's about. Dante's Inferno is really interesting. I mean, if you like damn round books, some people hate them, but I, I thought they were interesting. Take it with a grain of salt. (laughs) So a lot of religions have the God-body connection as a means of showing modesty. So they have plain clothing. They have veiling. A lot of religions talk about being pure. So lots of white clothing. So, for example, like Mormons, Mormon missionaries, they're called elders or sisters. They wear very modest clothing and hairstyles. Women have to wear blouses and skirts or dresses that go below the knee. And then men wear business suits. We've all you've ever seen a book of Mormon, you know, that outfit. I think one of the most interesting things about the church of the Latter-day Saints is their undergarments. I know, I don't know if you guys saw the news when Mitt Romney was running for president, but people were fascinated by their undergarments (laughs) and it's just really interesting. So it's called a temple garment and it is a two piece And you get it at your endowment ceremony and you have to wear it day and night. And it's required by all adults that go through the ceremony to wear it. And it is viewed as a symbolic and a literal source of protection from evils of the world. So if you've ever heard people make jokes about the magical Mormon underwear, that's where that comes from. It's that they believe it protects them. (laughs) So (laughs) I just remember everybody talking about the magical underwear and I was like, what is happening? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Why is this on the news? You and missed out on American history and you're starting from scratch. Is that the first <laughs> thing you want to know? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, like in Islam, you have the hijab, head scarf worn by women. And a lot of them start wearing it at puberty as a symbol of modesty and their religious faith. I found this really cool blog by Arsalan Riz- Rizvi. And she talks about the symbolism and why 
she as a woman wears them, which I thought was really cool. She says that hijab literally means the curtain or the veil and it's best understood by exploring the Islamic concept of modesty. Muslim men and women are required to be modest while mingling with unrelated members of the opposite gender. After telling Muslim men to lower their gazes, the Holy Quran reminds women, quote, and say to the believing woman that they should lower their gaze and guard their modesty and that they should not display their beauty and ornaments except what ordinarily appear thereof. So she discusses that to her personally, like her family wearing the hijab, you know, not only helps with, you know, her religious, but also helps with her to preserve her beauty for just at home. She says that she feels like it's a source of protection from sexual harassment because she's not Mm -hmm. showing. And then also as a way to stand against female exploitation. And I just thought it was interesting saying it from her viewpoint, because if you look at it from non-Islamic sources, it gets very yikes really quick. So I'll have that blog in the show notes because it's really interesting to hear just from her perspective why. Mine's too an interesting topic for us to cover. We should do an episode on that. Hmm. Yeah, think about what the artifact would be while being modest. Maybe a long sleeve shirt. (laughs) Not a chastity belt. Whoa, that'd be cool. (laughs) (laughs) The really chastity belts? It's, it's it's that late. <laughs> <laughs> and then like Buddhists have their own beliefs and the importance of certain kind of clothing. Unlike Christians and Muslims, Buddhists don't use veils during religious ceremonies. The robes worn by Buddhist monks are said to date back to Buddha's time, which mm-hmm. well, I got a picture of that. I'm kind of wondering like why they're orange. If there's a connection yeah, there. Yeah. yeah. Well, also the, the veils. I mean, if you live in the desert, you want to filter some of that sand out of your breathing. Well, a lot right? of it's a, it comes from something practical, for sure. Yeah. yeah. In uh, in North Africa, it's the men's or the the men who are wearing uh, face covers. So they're probably yeah. out in the out in the mm-hmm. field all day. Yeah. 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 So there is a lot of practical to it too. Um. So these robes have three layers to them, three components. We have an inner garment, a waist cloth, and an upper robe, and an outer robe. So the Buddhist nuns typically wear a vest and a bathing cloth. And then in Buddhist time, monastic robes were patched together with scraps of cloth to reflect the simple life and the vows that they took. And according to some Buddhist clergy, the robes create a uniformity of intention that you can see at first glance. So being bright like that, you see one, you absolutely know like what their intention is. And the colors vary by region. But a lot of the Buddhist monks were likely to use yellow and orange colors because they dyed them using vegetable matter and spices like turmeric and saffron. Hmm. Oh. Yeah. And then similar to Buddhist monks. Hungarian Buddhists do it come out red because of the paprika. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Just it's regional. So a lot of it's just where they're at and what they had. And like Jain monks and nuns, they vow to live a very austere life, and they do this by wearing white all the time, and that shows the the pureness. Ceremonial garb can even be attributed to like the most wild of religions, like Pastafarianism, which states that their <laughs> official <laughs> their official regalia is pirate regalia. That's their official that's, that's ceremonial clothing. I. <laughs> It's so funny. I, you know, they're considered official religion now to the point where you can put them on your, you can wear your uh, colander and your driver's license now in most states. 
But in case you don't know what that is, the central creation myth is that the invisible and undetectable flying spaghetti monster monster. (laughs) he created the universe after drinking very heavily one day. And they believe that pirates are absolutely divine beings in the original Pastafarians. So it's one of those. Let's see how far this can go before somebody arrests (laughs) us. (laughs) <laughs> it's true and it's been a big fight with yeah yeah them trying I mean, to wear the colander and driver's license because some people were trying to equate it with wearing a hijab and of course it's kind of a slap in the face <laughs> to be like i my pastafarianism is as important as your islam and you know that gets a little problematic i think there, there was there was a scene in the <sighs> the, the, the movie the hitchhikers to the, to the galaxy where they walk into this like uh, it's like a service scene where they talk about the great nose shall sneeze existence into whatever it is and you see everyone with these gar- they have these nose uh what, i don't know what to call it these nose garments it's just so funny how they just orchestrated a religion that's like it was like a chapel in there and everyone's mm-hmm. like Hey, true, instead of amen. And that was so funny. <laughs> Having designed all the costumes based on that idea of the universe being sneezed by the right, cosmic nose right. or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It it's wild. Uh, that's a real religion. Like I'm ordained as like a universal church or something, but you can be ordained as a Pasifarianism to marry people. <laughs> so it's interesting. I became a justice of the peace for a day to marry my best friend in America. I mean, oh, I didn't, cool. him, but I, I did his yeah. marriage. To yeah. yeah. It's um, at first off, I was like, maybe I should do the pasta farming. I think there's a church of the dude too. Like from, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure that you can get ordained through the dude, but I didn't do Your that. Vestments one. are a bathrobe. So. Yeah. <laughs> you have to do the wedding on a rug. We don't care about the rug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's just a little collection of some of the religions. There's so many other ones. Highly recommend if you ever get a chance to take like a religions course or, you know, read a book on the different kinds of vestments and religious garb. Definitely do it. Oh, Jedi. Jedi is also an official religion. Yes. Ah, yeah. If you can just, if you can just make it work in public, <laughs> use the force. It never works in public. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Have you ever seen anyone... You know, other than David Copperfield. You know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Well, thank you guys so much for joining me. I'm sure it's getting wow. late. What time is it there? Yeah, it's about 10 to 10. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I learned so much, and it was just so fascinating. I hope you guys can come back and do an artifact yeah. next. Wow, that would be, be awesome. Yeah, I would love to talk with you again. Mm-hmm. Thank you again, and I'll see you guys next time. Thank you. Wow, thanks so much. Live long and and prosper. (laughs) Amen. I want to thank the Artifacts Podcast again for joining me. If you guys join Patreon and watch the video of this, I'm literally sitting here like with my mouth agape the whole time. (laughs) I learned so much. I had no idea, but I just I love that they came on to talk about the different events that happen in Jerusalem and how it impacts them as people that live there that it it just blew my mind like I had no idea that there were so many periods in history where Jews were not allowed in their own land I mean I knew it but like to hear it you know to be at a time only two were allowed in that just blew my mind 
But I am just so thankful they came on and definitely check out their podcast. It is so good. And I didn't know about his other podcast, The Two Christians and a Jew, but I'm definitely going to listen to that now because that sounds amazing. And I just love the idea of just learning about each other's religions. And if you would like to watch this, all of the uh, three hours of it, go to Patreon. That's patreon.com slash historical AF pod. And if you would like to email me a story for the extra AF that we'll be recording this coming week. That is historicalafpod at gmail.com. If you'd like to buy merch, that is shop.spreadshirt.com slash historicalafpod. And thanks everybody that checked in on me after the, I think they're calling it Snowvid. <laughs> uh, if you're in Texas and you still don't have water or food, check out the Twitter. There is a thread that has all the information of all the major cities. And if you know of any other uh, resources, add them to it. But there are a lot of places that are giving away water and food right now. So definitely try to find those resources if you need them. Be sure to follow the podcast or at Historically of Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And follow me on TikTok. <laughs> it's at Kena Land. And I've been doing a lot of videos and clips from the podcast. All right, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Join me next week for Dogs Part 1 with the Fatal Fortunes Podcast. Okay, bye.